Tonight on Farage, a brutal sacking of 800 P&O ferry workers to be replaced by cheaper foreign labour. Does Brexit Britain deserve better is the question I'll be debating this evening. A catastrophic trip to the Middle East by Boris Johnson. Who are we backing? Iran, Saudi Arabia, or are we trying to back both? If we are, it won't work. And joining me on Talking Pints, a British manufacturer of washing machines, John Elliott. Good evening. It was brutal. It was cynical. There was no notice, no warning. 800 employees of the ferry company P&O were sacked. Many of them people who, of course, had worked for the company for the whole of their lives. What made it even worse was the way in which it was done. Take a look at this. Therefore, I am sorry to inform you that this means your employment is terminated with immediate effect on the grounds of redundancy. Your final day of employment is today. There we are, sacked by Zoom. But what makes it even worse is they're to be replaced by cheaper foreign workers who were already loaded onto coaches ready to go onto the boats and take those positions. Now, of course, we all understand that PNO had a very bad pandemic. People weren't travelling. Of course, they ran up some considerable losses. But think about this. They're actually wholly owned by DP World, a big United Arab Emirates company. A company that makes huge profits of around about £1 billion every single year. A firm that has got very close links to state-owned Russian companies and has been quite supportive of Vladimir Putin in the past. A firm that pays out big dividends to its shareholders and huge amounts of money to its bosses. Now, Boris Johnson was in the UAE yesterday. I don't suppose they told him about this, but my goodness me, it is a real kick in the teeth. And try this for size. P&O took furlough money during the lockdowns of £150 million, and yet these 800 members of staff have been sacked. I think it's an absolute disgrace. I really, really do. I'm asking you tonight the question, does Brexit Britain deserve better than this? Let me know what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. And I certainly do. You know, one of the points of Brexit is we're going to put the country, its workers and its people first. That simply hasn't happened. Let's go to Dover, where, of course, P&O operates several very large ferries. And let's speak to Eddie Costello, GB News' Southeast reporter, to find out what's been going on in Dover today. Well, good evening, Nigel. And this is being described as one of the most shameful acts in the history of British industrial relations. Those are the words of the RMT union who are now threatening legal action against P&O after 800 members of staff were sacked today over Zoom call. Those hardworking people were told that their employment was terminated immediately. And the RMT union have been protesting today in Dover. They actually blocked two roads here earlier uh, with signs and banners. They're calling on PNO to reverse this decision and lorries and cars that were passing by were tooting their horns in support for the RMT union. Lots of support down here in Dover for them. And that is because PNO is the leading operator in Dover for crossings to Calais. There were 14 crossings alone scheduled for today. So you can only 
only imagine the disruption that this is going to cause in the next few days. There are, in fact, three P&O ferries just behind me here. They are not going anywhere anytime soon. We have heard reports that minibuses arrived in the car park just to my left a little bit earlier on this afternoon with foreign workers. They, have, they were supposedly meant to have flown in this morning and they will be replacing the workers that were on these ferries behind me. So this afternoon there was a security and a police presence here in Dover as workers were brought off these ferries and agency workers went on to those ferries. I spoke to a woman earlier who said that she had a friend on board one of these ferries who had worked there for 20 years and she was in convulsions of tears. Um, now this isn't just happening here Nigel, there's also huge disruption in Northern Ireland. Uh, the crew on one of the ships that were docked there lifted the gangway after they found out that security um, agents were coming on to remove them. And there was also a sit-in on the Pride of Hull this afternoon. The crew there refused to be removed from the ship. Uh, they now have left the ship, but a spokesperson has said that they are absolutely devastated. Now, in a statement, P&O said that this was a tough decision, but they said that this was not a viable business. They were making losses of £100 million year after year. They were in a black hole. And they say they had to rely on this cheaper agency labour in order to stay afloat. And they added that their current staff can apply to be agency workers. They also added that they will be offered compensation because they appreciate that they haven't been given any notice. But Nigel, for many of the workers here, they will say that's simply not good enough after their loyalty throughout the pandemic and for their hard work after all these years. Ellie, thank you very much indeed for that report from Dover. Well, yes, compensation has been offered. I'm told that for the average worker, it'll be something like £13,500. Uh, that's, of course, if they sign for that. If they don't sign for that, it'll go down to £3,000. I got that story directly from P&O earlier on this afternoon. Uh, and it's going to be devastating uh, for many, many of those areas. Hull, as Ellie mentioned, there was a sit-in as... The sacked workers refused to leave the boat as the coachloads of new agency workers were supposed to come in. Uh, I do know that quite a lot of people who are moving onto those boats come from Colombia. As to where the rest of the people come from, I simply don't know. But to argue that it's losing 100 million a year, well, of course it is. It's been closed down for two years. But they did take, a, I repeat the point, they did take £150 million of furlough money. So I think the whole thing is an absolute disgrace. And this is not the country that it's supposed to be. You know, one of the reasons we voted Brexit is we saw British workers constantly being undercut. We saw a labour market that was flooded, in many cases making the minimum wage the maximum wage. People who voted Brexit voted for better than this. And the government had better have a very, very rapid think about how it responds. It's no good just saying this is not acceptable. How are we going to protect British workers? Or, am I wrong? Is this just the modern, globalised world that we live in? Well, if it is, and if corporate profits come above people's jobs and communities, uh, I'd much rather, I'd much rather take the latter than the former. I'd much rather say, well, even if we're not quite as competitive, at least we keep our country together and we keep trust in the whole system together because this is one of the most cynical sackings I have ever 
seen in my life. My late friend, and this may surprise you, but my late friend, Bob Crow, was of course boss of the RNT years ago, uh, died very prematurely. And you, you know, you might raise an eyebrow. How could Bob and I agree? Actually, we did agree on lots of big things, like the need to leave the European Union, the need to control our borders, the need to put the interests of British workers first. And I'm sure if he was still alive today, uh, he'd be making a lot of noise about this. It is a disgrace. What it will lead to, I don't know. If it was France, we'd see blockades of the ports. Whether that will happen here or not, I've no idea, but I do feel very, very sorry for these people. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that Boris Johnson was in the United Arab Emirates yesterday, and that, of course, is where DP World, P&O's owner, comes from. But that wasn't the only failure of Boris Johnson's trip yesterday. You know, he went to Saudi Arabia on the same day that we agreed to pay effectively a £400 million ransom. Well, you could say we'd owed the money for many, many years. But we paid that money. And of course, Nazanin and one other came back to the UK from Iran yesterday. If we were going to pay that money, we could have paid it at any other moment during the course of the last six years. We didn't. So Boris Johnson goes to UAE and Saudi. On the day, we pay money to Iran and those hostages are released. But behind that is something much, much bigger. The Obama administration signed up to the Iran nuclear deal. It freed Iran up. It was worth tens of billions of dollars to them. They used that money not just to enrich themselves, but also to fund terrorist organizations right across the Middle East and to break the rules and to continue to develop nuclear warheads. We're told they're close now to having four nuclear warheads completed. And yet, almost unbelievably, Joe Biden is pushing hard to renew the Iran nuclear agreement. In it, he has the support of the European Union. And he will have the support of the British government because when Boris Johnson was foreign secretary, he approved of this deal too. Trump got rid of it. And Trump's first foreign visit was to Saudi Arabia. Now look, whether it's Iran or Saudi Arabia, we can deplore the way in which they treat their people. But what you can't do is try to do business and be friends with both. Quite how Boris Johnson thought he could be supportive of a new Iran nuclear deal, pay the money to Iran, and yet get a good deal out of the Saudis, I don't know. And look what happened to him. Not only did he come back completely empty-handed, with no guarantees from the Saudis that they would increase oil production, let alone sell any of it directly to us, but on the same day that Johnson was in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi government announced they're thinking of getting their oil recalibrated from US dollars into, wait for it, into the Chinese yuan currency. So at every level, at every level, Boris was insulted. And that's not even to mention the three executions that took place shortly after he landed in Saudi Arabia. Johnson says we need energy independence, by which he means not buying gas and oil from Russia. He thinks we're energy independent if we choose to buy it somewhere else rather than producing it ourselves. It is completely and utterly ludicrous. And just think about this. Diesel cars. There are 18 million diesel cars on the road. Somewhere between 20 and 40 percent 
of the diesel that goes into our cars, our trucks, our vans, our taxis. 20 to 40% of it actually is refined in, you've guessed it, Russia, which partially explains why diesel is becoming so much more expensive than unleaded, but shows you once again the lunacy of this government's green policy, we have priced refining out of the United Kingdom. So at every level, I think we're incompetent when it comes to running business. I think our foreign policy in the Middle East is a complete and utter mess. In a minute, I'll discuss that Saudi visit, what a disaster is, and whether we should start getting closer to Iran. I suspect, I suspect, the British government are prepared to buy oil from Iran. Well, after those brutal sackings and the replacement of 800 British workers by foreign, cheaper workers, I asked the question, does Brexit Britain deserve better? Jeff says, how about we cancel their licence to operate in the UK? Well, I'm sure with the pandemic best part behind us, there will be other operators that would step in. They're pretty busy routes. Julia says, it's horrific what they've done. Modern day slave trade. Let's all boycott P&O. John says, how can they be sacked? by reason of redundancy if they are being immediately replaced by others. Well, you're quite right to point that out because that was what was said on that Zoom call. Camilla says, if P&O are on the verge of going bust, this might be a desperate solution for the short term. Horrendous, but if they dig themselves out of this hole, perhaps all those sacked could be re-employed. I would remind you that DP World is a very, very heavily resourced Profitable company. Its profits rose by over 20% last year. P&O is actually a very, very small part of DP World. Stephen says, it is disgraceful what P&O have done. Their ships in British ports right now should be seized until they repay all the furlough money. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm getting a bit tired of this demand to seize houses and seize vessels. I'm not sure it's the right way to proceed. Now, what are we doing in the Middle East? Do we have a policy? What was Boris Johnson's trip all about. Can we actually be friendly with Iran and Saudi Arabia at the same time? I don't think so. Well, joining me to discuss this vexing issue is Professor Michael Clark, senior fellow at the Centre for Defence Research and previously served on the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. Good evening, Michael. Yes, hello. Do you understand my confusion about Boris going to Saudi Arabia, hoping that they were going to be very nice to him and say, yes, of course, we will increase oil production and sell you some, whilst at the same time, the West is beginning to pivot back towards the Iran nuclear deal. Yes, these are, I mean, two difficult policies running in tandem. I mean, politics is never neat, as you know. Uh, the timing is always lousy for these things. <clears throat> so, I mean, Joe Biden had already opened the door to speaking to Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, as he's known, in Saudi Arabia. He didn't want to talk to him. He wanted to keep up this sort of diplomatic embargo following the merger of Kasodji, uh, the journalist uh, Kasodji, uh, yeah. more or less certainly on MBS's orders. And Boris, in a way, was following Biden's lead um, by saying, yeah, we've got we've just got to deal with this. I mean, the, the exigencies of the moment because of the the crisis created by the war in Ukraine are that we've got to find a way of persuading the oil producers to increase production, partly to as we put more oil onto the market, but also to keep the prices a bit lower since they're 
uh, zooming up. <clears throat> and this is the sort of thing he, I'm sure he wouldn't have wanted to go now. Um, but there was a feeling that I, I think he had to he had to try. He's used up a lot of diplomatic credit in being seen to go, not just to talk to Mohammed bin Salman, but to go there almost cap in hand. And he's come away with very little. Downing Street have been very tight lipped tonight, saying, well, you know, it's not all about coming back with something. It's not all about coming back with a deal that OPEC will increase production. It's about long term conversations, long term perspectives on stability in the oil market. Well, fine. You could have done that from Downing Street. Yeah, but I'm struck. Where is the long term relationship with Saudi Arabia um, if we see a recast Iran nuclear deal? And it does appear that Joe Biden is very keen to do it. The European Union are keen to do it. And as you know, when Boris Johnson was foreign secretary, he was publicly very supportive of it. We can't be friends with both, can we? Well, you can. I mean, you, that's the point. You're trying to balance those two things. You don't want to get into. You don't want to get involved in the feud. And it is a long-term historical feud between the Saudis and the Iranians. What you yeah. what you're trying to do is keep the diplomatic lines open to both because we have different interests with both. And the point is that I mean, I, you know, Trump you know, withdrew from the uh, original uh, deal, and the result of that withdrawal is that the Iranians are now a lot no closer to nuclear weapons than they were with the deal. Remember, the deal was a 10-year moratorium on any more activity on that front. And in withdrawing, in wrecking the deal, the Iranians are now much closer than they were. So what the what uh, Biden and the Europeans are and Britain are keen to do is get some deal in place to at least restrain that. It's not as good as what we had before, but it's better than just letting the Iranians go off saying, well, you can't trust the Americans, you can't trust the West. We're going nuclear hell for leather. They're not going to do that now. They are trying to get a nuclear weapon, but we've slowed the process down again. See what happens when 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 all all of the policy areas fail. It's not the worst thing in the world just to play for time. And that's really what the powers are doing in Iran. We're playing for time because every other type of policy yeah. to try to prevent Iran going nuclear has failed. But the counter argument to that, Michael, very strongly is that the that deal being put in place in Obama's time did enrich Iran, that some of that money was used to fund and spread terrorism right across the region, and that's pretty much undisputed that they did that. True, true. And, yeah. and, and furthermore, many say that actually they completely ignored uh, the idea that they weren't going to go on with their nuclear weapons development programme. So they were getting money, funding terrorism, and carrying on with the programme anyway. Now, well, two things there, Nigel. One is that they didn't do that. They did stick to the nuclear part of the deal. They may not have, they may not have intended to in the very long term because they are determined to become nuclear sooner or later, that's for sure. But they did stick to the deal. And there's a dirty little secret in all of this is that when we complain that they were using money to do other things, that they didn't sort of pull back on their support for Hezbollah or for what they were doing yeah. in Iraq, the fact is we were the ones, when it came to doing the deal, we were the ones who said, keep it to nuclear issues. It was the Iranians originally who said, we want to discuss this and this and this. And we, and we said, no, no, we'll, we don't want to give them too much wiggle room. So it was the Western powers who said stick to the nuclear issues. And so the Iranians did stick to the nuclear issues and they did begin to implement those parts of the deal, but they didn't restrain their activities elsewhere. And it was the American Congress and American Republicans who said, why did we do the deal when the Iranians are behaving so badly? And that the truth was we left all those behaving badly bits out of the deal because we wanted to stick to the nuclear bit. So, you know, nobody comes out of this completely cleanly, but it's, it's very unjust. To, it's very unjust to say that the Iranians, as it were, did not 
restrain themselves elsewhere when we were the ones who actually made them stick to just the nuclear parts of the deal. No, that's a very, very good point, strong point. It shows, in some ways, how bad the deal was. It's an imperfect world. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much indeed for joining me here tonight on GB News. Well, sticking with this theme, I'm joined by Jonathan Paris, a Middle East analyst, senior advisor to the Chertoff Group, and has been a consultant for the US government since 2003. Jonathan, good evening and welcome. Good evening. How close do you think Joe Biden is to doing a new deal with Iran? And I say this in the context that just a few days ago, the Iranians were firing missiles into Iraq, quite close to an American consulate. I, I'm afraid that they're very close. Um, and it's, it's a pity uh, because uh, this deal is a lot worse than the original deal. You know, they had this idea of taking the IRGC off the terrorist list, the IRGC being the, the military uh, wing uh, that does all the mischief you mentioned in the region, in exchange that the IRGC would promise not to uh, continue to create chaos in the Middle East, to tone it down. and But rather than seek a specific promise to do it on specific issues, whether it be Yemen or Syria or Lebanon, uh, they left it vague uh, because they even though Michael Pence, who happened to be in the region, thought that there were specific things that they were trying to get the IRGC to agree to, but they left it vague. And this is how Iran has just walked over the P5 plus one. I've never seen such a one-sided negotiation in my whole life. It's unbelievable. And is that why Boris Johnson got short shrift yesterday when he turned up in Saudi Arabia? And I, I mentioned the points earlier, but I'll repeat them. You know, number one, they carried out more executions, you know, just after his plane had landed. Number two, he walked away empty handed when it came to dealing with oil. And, and, and number three, you know, they actually said we're considering scrapping the US dollar and using the Chinese currency, which, of course, would be quite a chip away at the dollar's use as a reserve currency. Is that why Boris effectively had sand thrown in his eyes yesterday? Uh, I, I agree with you that Boris uh, didn't come back with what he hoped to come back. But I think from the Saudi point of view, and I, I, I want you to look at the way he sees not only Boris, but, but Biden, um, he's pretty uh, upset. First of all, he's personally insulted whether or not you, you sympathize with him or not, uh, you have to understand how face, how important face is in that region. But the way he's been shunned as a result of the Khashoggi uh, affair uh, has been deeply humiliating to him. And, uh, and Biden has to uh, figure out a way to, to, uh, to make amends so that uh, they can get back to an even keel. Now, I think the idea I thought was that Boris would be kind of going there, uh, having the handshake, and, and opening the door to, uh, to Biden uh, visiting. I understand Blinken, the Secretary of State, is going to go see him next week or so. Uh, uh, but the idea is we've got strategic interest in the Middle East, and Saudi is on our side strategically. Apart from all the human rights stuff you mentioned, which I fully agree with, they're on our side. Iran is not on our side. Iran China and Putin 
are not on our side. They seek to undermine the West. The Saudis are are on our side. They're even calling Israel a, a friend, a potential ally. We should work to to create that, uh, to bring them into the Abraham Accords. And yeah. above all, we should persuade them to lower the price of oil. But right now, we've got to restore that uh, balance uh, with, uh, with the Saudis. And I think Boris's job uh, trip was the first step in that direction. OK, Jonathan Paris, thank you for joining us here on GB News. Thank you. Jonathan there saying, well, at least Boris was making the effort. It didn't go very well. I think Trump was right. I think Trump was absolutely right. I don't think you can trust the Iranians. They're not our friends. It is the most extreme Islamist regime. It's been there for 40 years. We may not like many things that happen in Saudi Arabia, but actually, as quite rightly Jonathan mentioned, in terms of their attitude towards Israel and many other things, it's pretty clear to me which side of the fence we should be on. My what the Farage moment? Well... <sighs> I don't like this one little bit, but we know the influence that China has over the corporates. It is extending to the publishing world. The Financial Times get credit for this. They pointed out that Octopus Books and Corto, two British publishers who get books printed in China and then sold in the United Kingdom and around the rest of Europe, that actually, because of Chinese pressure, the books that you will read from those publishers in this country will now be censored. Mentions of Taiwan will not be there. Mentions of Tibet most certainly will not be there. And there will be not be the names of any prominent Chinese dissidents. It's just one more example of the extent to which corporate Britain, the corporate West, is prepared to bow down to communist China. It's all about money. It isn't about principle. Another What the Farage moment, the latest instance of domination in swimming by a transgender swimmer at college level. The University of Pennsylvania's Leah Thomas scorched female competitors during the NCAA Swimming Championships 500-yard freestyle prelims in Atlanta. She scored the top time in the event nearly five seconds faster than anybody else in that event and, of course, earning her top seed in the final. And again and again and again, we have seen this swimmer winning events, winning female swimming events, and winning them absolutely by a mile. Uh, she keeps setting records. And you really have to ask yourself that if we continue like this, frankly, what would the point be in any young girl wanting to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, which good swimmers have to do, training, doing lengths before going to school, before going to college, if people are allowed, people like Thomas are allowed to compete against them. I think there's something, and I don't often touch this subject on this show, but I do think there's something very, very wrong with that. And I think women probably should speak out a bit more loudly about it. Now, I did talk on the show when I was in Dudley the other evening about what had been said in the House of Commons by the Labour Member of Parliament for Rhonda, one Chris Bryant. And I've written to the Speaker, I've written to Sir Lindsay Hoyle, and the point that I've made is this. MPs having parliamentary privilege is a good thing. They need to be free to speak their minds, to expose issues without fear of being injuncted by big companies or rich men. I completely understand why we have parliamentary privilege and indeed I did use it more than once myself 
in my over 20 years in the European Parliament. I get it. I understand it. But my point to Sir Lindsay Hoyle is this. It's not there to be used to pursue vendettas. It's not there to be used to spread malicious untruths. And I pointed out to the Speaker that in 2018, I didn't appear once on Russia Today, that channel. In fact, the last time I appeared was back in early 2017, and frankly, before that, pretty infrequently. I didn't earn a penny, not a penny, from RT in 2018, let alone the £548,000 that Brian alleged. What he said was not true, without substance, without any basis at all. And so I've asked the Speaker, would he please speak to Chris Brown and ask him to retract? Or perhaps ask him if he believes this that strongly that he should say it outside of the House of Commons chamber. Ever since that Brexit vote, back in 2016, we have seen a handful of Labour MPs repeatedly using parliamentary privilege to say all sorts of things about those who campaigned for Brexit and those who helped to fund that campaign. It is a complete abuse of parliamentary privilege. Uh, I'm not going to publish the letter. I'll leave it with the Speaker for him to deal with. And I understand he's a busy man and all in good time. But it cannot be right, cannot be right, that anybody in this country is subjected under parliamentary privilege to things being said against them that are without any basis of substance at all. That simply cannot be right. Otherwise, what's the stop, Mr Bryant, getting up and making an even more outrageous claim against me next week. That, that, that really isn't right. Some more thoughts from you, the viewers, on what's happened at P&O. One viewer says, nothing to do with Brexit. This is because the company was sold to UAE and they will always look out for themselves. They won't put the UK first. I'm not saying it's because of Brexit. I'm arguing that Brexit had given us an expectation that we'd start to put the interests of British workers first. And yeah, if a firm is there in the UAE, I suppose why should they care about British people? They simply care about profits. Rebecca says, Britain has been selling itself from ports to houses to Qatar, Saudi Arabia, UAE, China. So what do you expect? Another says, a company registered in Dubai gets 33 million of emergency funding from the UK government. And as soon as they can, the management betray the employees. Well, in furlough, it was 150 million. And finally on this, Robert says, I thought we did Brexit to stop things like this happening. Can we revoke all visa applications to the UK made by the partaking agencies? Well, actually, we would, in some circumstances, have the power to do that. Now, I've been talking a lot on this show about power, the cost of energy, the government's disconnect with entrepreneurship and with business. And I believe it. And I feel it very strongly. And my guest tonight on Talking Pints, very much a self-made man, very much an entrepreneur, a manufacturer. In fact, the only UK manufacturer of washing machines. He's come down today from County Durham. I'll be joined in a moment on Talking Pints by John Elliott. Well, the GB News Tavern is open and our guest tonight, John Elliott, boss, boss of washing machine manufacturer EBAC, has already, because he's a very plain spoken guy, 
criticised the lack of head on the beer. But nonetheless, John, welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you. And it's very good to see you. Now, I've already told the folk that you're the only UK manufacturer of washing machines, and we'll get back to that. But what interests me, John, is, you know, you left school at 15 with... Two wasted years. It should have been 30. <laughs> so you leave school with no qualifications. That's right. How do you go from that to running a big factory, being in, you know, inventing new things, being an entrepreneur? Being lucky. Being lucky. Lucky is important. And I seem to have the knack of understanding how things work. And I did take an apprenticeship. Yep. And I did go to, uh, did further education for five years, one day and one night a week. Yep. The beauty of that was, I was learning things I was doing at work. Whereas the university, you learn things that you might never do at work. So I think the benefit of training people, you need, we need education. We need education, what I'm saying. We need it, but it's got to be appropriate. And the beauty of doing an apprenticeship with, I studied engineering, electrical engineering, yep. which I did at work as well. Do we encourage enough youngsters these days to go into things like engineering? No, I, I don't know. But there's even people that don't need apprenticeships. A lot of people who do the useful work in the country learn on the job. Even electricians, you don't learn that at school or university, you learn it on the job, right. working with another electrician. And education off the job, appropriate education. So most jobs that do useful things that we need to make our lives acceptable, producing food, making clothes, making washing machines, are done by people who learn the skills on the job. And it's about attitude more than actually skills. So your education came post official school, but you say working, doing night school, doing things like that. And, and, and did, you, did you kind of find the thing in life that you were good at? I always doubted myself, actually. I did think at one time not having a proper education was a weakness. And, and then I realised it was probably was a strength. Because <laughs> educate... How could not having an education no, no, be a strength? No, learning's important. <laughs> but our formal education is a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. You know, we should look at development of kids, not educating them. Education is part of it. But the main thing is to educate kids from birth to adulthood. And it's all different. Different people with different parents need different development than people with good parents or different parents. So we need to think of it like development of the child, the individual child, rather one size fits all. You've got to pass an A level in maths and do quadratic equations, which you'll never ever use in your life. Well, it depends, but you're unlikely. Well, very few you're, people. You're unlikely to. But yeah. you could learn about that. Yeah. Now we've got so good means of, better means of learning on the internet. You can learn anything, actually, if, you want to learn, if you're interested in learning. Yeah. It's about learning, not being taught. You've got to want to learn. You've got to want to understand. I understand refrigeration very well. Never had any formal education on that. But I've read books about it, and I've played with it, and tried things, and looked at it, and thought about it. And that's how you really learn. Now, you took the big step, you know, at a, at a relatively young age, in, in your 20s. You're going to set up on your own, yep. set up your own company, risk everything, and that is classic. A, a bit reckless, really. Had two, ch two small children. Yep. No income. But you did it. Yep. You did it. And that's a few years ago now, isn't it? It's a long time ago. <laughs> Should we call it 50-odd? <laughs> well, EBAC's been around 50 years next year. Right, OK. So you set, you set EBAC up 50 years ago at a time when Britain had a lot more manufacturing industry. Oh, yes. A lot more. And, you know, you're from the northeast, from County Durham, and you think of shipbuilding that was happening yep. at the time in Sunderland and steel. all of those steel. I mean, so much. Yep. So much has gone and, and often in the northeast been replaced by call centres or whatever yep. else it yep. may be. Which are quite important jobs, call centres. No, I, I wasn't knocking them, but in terms of the value to the British economy, 
yep. you know, of actually making things and not having to import things. Absolutely right. Now, clearly, John, the rise of China, India, etc. Clearly, there were some of those jobs that were going to move abroad anyway. But what is it British government doesn't understand about manufacturing? Well, the, 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 I think all of us thought what, sort of 30 years ago that we should be we're too clever to do simple manufacturing jobs. And that's not true. But we can't balance the books out unless we manufacture more things in the UK. We'll never, we accept a deficit. Ah, but if we manufacture things in the UK, John, we're emitting CO2. And if they admit, if, if, if uh, your washing machines are made in India, that's not our fault, that's you say. Right. No, no, there's different rules, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's more difficult in the UK, many things, uh, because of regulations, the working time directive, all of these things, and they don't serve the purpose they intended for. And, cost, the and what about cost of energy? I mean, we're paying, you as a manufacturer are paying, what, 50% more than the Americans? Yeah. Significantly more than the French? That's right. And others? How big a burden is that? And, and given the way prices are going? Oh, oh, the, we, it's quite big for us because we do our own plastic moulding as well, and that takes a lot of energy. Electricity is what we've got to use. So it is significant. But the cost of plastics doubled in the last couple of years because of oil, because plastic yeah. and oil yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never known anything like the last two years. It's been very, every day is a different problem. Supply chain, can't get a container. We're shipping goods to America, we can't get a container. Or we get one and then they cancel it. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, I've never known things as difficult as the last two years. Even worse than the 70s. I can remember when we did the, had the three-day week and no electricity, so and that's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I've never known, it's just for so long as well, it's two years. Yeah. Now, I'm told by some it's all the fault of Brexit, you see, and you were a prominent northern Brexit backer, weren't you? Absolutely. <laughs> I was unusual, actually. I did, most of the people succeed in business that I looked at and respect were Remainers. That did surprise me, actually. I didn't think maybe I was wrong. Um, but my belief was that the EU is conceptually flawed. It's a one-size-fits-all. You can't have the same currency for Greece and Germany. Mm, it doesn't make well, sense. Well, that's pretty clear. And, and you can't have the same export rules with America for, for Scotland and France. Else wine takes presence over whiskey. You know, each discrete economy has got to be independent. How much of your manufacture goes to Europe? Our biggest market for water coolers before we started selling to America was France. Okay. And that's still probably our second biggest, but in the last two years we've got we started selling to the USA. Um, and that's now our biggest market. And is that what's going to happen to Britain with Brexit? We, we're we're, we're going to start reaching out to other markets? I think we've got to make more here. You see, the, the belief is we got a grant for the washing machine. We almost didn't get it because we weren't exporting. And yet replacing imports is exactly the same as exporting. There's a belief that you've got to export. Our industrial strategy for the last 30 years has been this. Let's train people with high skills to produce high value of work and then export it. Now, if you say, who are we going to train, what we're going to train, what we're going to make, you don't get any, any answer. We, don't, we need the bread and butter stuff. We need the stuff that we need. Food on the table, a shirt on your back, yeah, yeah. a roof over your head. And that's done by people who do manual work. Um, and that's I mean, what, I've been to your factory. I mean, you're manufacturing quite a broad range of products, aren't you? Three different products for our size. Yeah. And we also do injection moulding, fabrication, as well as the assembly. We actually make the printed circuit boards, um, assemble the printed circuit boards. We love making things. No, clearly. And the washing machine. I mean, the only British maker of washing That's machines. That's right. Why? Why aren't other British companies making washing machines? Big business. Well, big business will go to Poland to save $2. Right. You know, and yet you will save some money. Yep. Um, we're not paranoid about profit. You've got to be a profitable business. You can't be a charity. But I live in the UK, so it's important to me to be in the UK. And that's why the business was put into a foundation 
So it can never, it can never move. It's always going to be in manufacturing for generations to come. But you could sell the business. No, no, it's not for sale. It never was for sale. There are more stakeholders in the business than the shareholders. What, do you mean the community and County Down? I, I mean the people who work there, and the next people who work there, and the suppliers. You know, so your vision, your vision is long after you, EBAC's going to be there providing jobs. Absolutely right. Part of the community. Yes. Have we taken advantage? You mentioned regulations a few minutes ago. You know, one of, and I'd been in business before, you know, the European Parliament and all that. And one of the big arguments for me for Brexit was that a lot of EU regulation was heavy-handed, a lot of it was over the top, and that Brexit was our chance to perhaps streamline things. Chance. Yeah. So, I mean, have you seen any no. improvements? But we actually made them worse anyway, didn't we? We took the European legislation and made it more difficult. Yeah, we did. You know, we, we, <coughs> we've got a problem there. We've got to take advantage of Brexit. Brexit's an opportunity. It's a chance. We've got to take it. Will Boris Johnson listen to you, John? I think, I think Boris has got more chance than any of the other politicians, actually. Hmm. Uh, he's different. I oh, think, he's, oh, he's different, all right. I think the best politician in my lifetime was Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan believed in this. Don't do the detail. Sit back and look at the big picture. Like being a chairman of a business, you don't, deal, you don't work in the business, you work on the business. And you've got to take a long-term view. And that's what Boris should be doing. Not involved in buying PPE for hospitals. He should be sitting back, talking to people, looking at the long-term view, and let other people do the detail. Who, I mean, John... And know. take risks as well, which I think Boris <coughs> will do. And you'll get some things wrong. But that's OK. You're better off taking a risk to get some things right rather than taking any risk at all. But if you're making a washing machine right now, which you are, yep. you are doing it under a mass of EU rules that came in little piece by little piece yes. over nearly 50 years of our membership of the Union. Could those rules be simplified to the benefit of your business, employees, profitability? To the benefit of everybody. Without, without dropping safety standards? Well, absolutely not. Health and safety is vital, without a doubt. But some of these things, like the working time directive, is supposed to be health and safety, it isn't. What we don't do, or what governments don't do, they don't measure things. They don't look and see what's the effects of this. The working time directive is another example of a one-size-fits-all. You know, you need different breaks depending on what you're doing. You know, it's arbitrary. The regulations on ventilation systems, we're designing ventilation systems now, yeah. they're arbitrary, and they're not appropriate for the application. So we need somebody in government that understands what you're talking about. We need about. to measure things better and look at the effects of things. Measurement is key. What's the output? Education, how effective is it? Not... Passing examinations doesn't measure education. It's how relevant is that education to their lives. And do you see MPs, do you see ministers, do you see front benches that understand this stuff? No, I don't meet very many of them, so... <laughs> I don't believe that for a moment. <laughs> I mean, I, that's what worries me. There I think a lot of them try quite hard, actually. I mean, my constituencies, uh, the, the, uh, the MP came from the South, was, and, and he won a Labour seat mm -hmm. in, in North East Durham. And I didn't know him, and I haven't met him very often. I've met him recently. He's amazed me. His knowledge of this constituency is better than mine. Wow. He's really got into the community. So he, you've got to take your hats off to that. Now you're you? a County Durham man through and through. Oh, absolutely. And you're a... Southwest Durham, even. Let's be more specific. <laughs> you're a Deputy Lieutenant of a county. That's right. And, you know, you've got this, uh, you've got this company that's going to be there in trust and keep going. And County Durham swung from Labour to Conservative in quite a remarkable way. Uh, you know, Bishop Auckland, where you were born. That's right. You know, Deanna Davison, who does a bit of work on this channel. Um, are the Tories going to hold those seats next time round, in your opinion, knowing the county as you do? I think so. Do you? I think so. There's been quite a big shift. 
They can still lose it, um, but I think because the competition isn't very good either, actually. We don't have a great competition. Uh, what, what, from Labour, you mean? I, I think the biggest benefit to the Conservatives winning in the last election was Mr Corbyn. I yeah, think I he, do. He, but, he, he, but he's gone, and Keir Starmer's not scary, is he? No. But he doesn't have any real policies, does he? Uh, see, I haven't discovered any. The whole system, to me, is crazy. <laughs> Imagine this. You elect someone to run a business, say Tesco, and you've got two options, and they're both similar. One wins. The one who loses then sits in the next office to try and make him fail. That's how a system works, isn't it? Mm. Uh, you know, how can that be? You know, Wednesday is a full day of the Prime Minister's time. It's, it'll take hours to prepare for it. And what's the use of it? It should be running the country or thinking about the big well, picture. Well, I suppose it's public accountability or whatever it is. Well, that's what the courts say. But, but, but whether it really works or not, I don't know. John, a final thought from you. A final thought from you. On the manufacturing sector, can we look forward to some optimism to British manufacturing coming back, to jobs coming back? Absolutely. Look, this is a very successful business in the North East. The sad news is it's foreign-owned. We make good cars efficiently. Yeah, we do. We, do. we can do it. But unfortunately, people don't invest in business. They can make more money playing the stock market than investing in real businesses. That might change, you never know, with the way the Hopefully. markets look at the moment. John Elliott, thank you for joining me on Talking Pints. Thank you very much. Right, we've got a couple of minutes left on the programme and it is time for Barrage the Farage. You've sent your questions in. I haven't seen them. Here goes. Fraser asks me, should parliamentary privilege be modernised accordingly in an era of constant misinformation to protect MPs and using blatant lies and untruths with impunity? Look, it's important that an MP can stand up in Parliament and say, this company is doing this wrong. You know, for example, Robert Maxwell, you know, when he was, when he was abusing the pension fund. Important that MPs have the ability to say things without the threat of big money or injunctions stopping them. But when it comes to pursuing vendettas, and there has been a vendetta against Brexiteers from a handful of Labour MPs, what was said about me this week was, was just me. I've seen it said about Aaron Banks again and again and again, uh, and that is not what parliamentary privilege is for. And I've written to the Speaker, who I believe to be a very good, decent, honourable man, doing a great job, and actually bringing some, some integrity back to Parliament, and I want him try and sort this out. Mackenzie, who must be my youngest viewer, age seven. Hi, Mackenzie. Asks, why are Russia being so mean to Ukraine? It's a hell of a good question, Mackenzie. Uh, it's all about the ambitions of one man. Amazing what one man's crazy ego can do. There are one or two historical complications. But in effect, Russia's gone to war with their own Cousins, And when you think of it like that, it's pretty mad, Mackenzie. It's about time human beings grew up, and it'll take a long time. Jeff asks, what will win the Cheltenham Gold Cup tomorrow? John, you're a horse race owner. Well, that's a good question. It'll almost definitely be Irish. Yep. <laughs> hedging, hedging. And, yes. I, and I'm going to be there tomorrow. I'm going to be there tomorrow at the Gold Cup in Cheltenham. Looking forward to it amazingly. One viewer asked me, sea fishing or river fishing? I love sea fishing. I used, to, I used to love going river fishing, particularly in Scotland, when the salmon were there. Sadly, there are fewer salmon in Scotland these days, which is a great, great shame. I'm done for the week. I'm off to Cheltenham. I'm back with you on Monday evening. In a moment, you'll be joined by Mark Stein. Mark Stein. 